Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of the Talking About podcast. I am Sean Kennedy. Joining me on the line is our lead voice at Liberty Ballers, Dave Early. Dave, how are you doing this week? I'm doing good. I'm doing well. How about you? I can't complain. Um, Aside from the recent on-court entertainment that we've borne witness to, uh, since we last spoke last week, the Sixers had the very high of beating Golden State at home and Matisse Thibel shutting down Steph Curry in front of a national audience. And then they quickly followed that with three very disappointing losses, a 35-point loss to Memphis, which, sure, they were missing Joel and Seth, but Memphis was missing John Morant, and they lost by 35. Just looked like they had no business being on a professional basketball court. And then they followed those with losses against Miami and Brooklyn, where you know they ended up being relatively close games. They were they were tied in the in the final two minutes each of them, but the Sixers pulled out to they got behind by large margins. They fell behind early in these games, and both Miami and Brooklyn were missing a significant amount of rotation players due to COVID health and safety protocols. So really, the Sixers just should have easily handled their business in each of those games. So, Dave, I wanted to ask you, what, what do you make of the recent uh, ups and downs for the Sixers, um, beating the team with the best record in the league in Golden State, and then just three terrible losses? Yeah, I um, I think it's they. the way to look at it is they can get up for a great team if they're at home and if they're fully healthy, um, but it's not something that we can expect tonight and night out. And they are more like um one of the bottom four teams in the east basically (laughs) you know like six seven eight in that area um they they might be able to avoid a play-in but it's hard to uh it's hard to imagine that they definitely will avoid a play-in unless they swing a blockbuster um yeah, I'll mention just before you go on right now, they're at 15 and 15 on the season. They're currently eighth in the East. So, yeah, they, if, we're at, if the season were to end today and we are more than a third of the way through the season, the Sixers would be in the playing tournament. Yeah, and so you ask yourself how much of that hot start was just a hot start. Um, they shot the ball. I think they had like the best – um, effective field goal percentage of the entire league. I think they might have even had the best offense in the entire league. Things that we were so surprised about that we might not have expected them to stay the same. Um, so where would they have sort of settled in and regressed to if they hadn't had Joel out for three weeks? Tobias Harris, who we'll talk more about, I believe, um, was out. Atis was out. I mean, they, they got hit. And now George Yang is out. So it's it, you could give them plenty of excuses, but even if they were at full strength at this point, um, they're not playing inspiring basketball. No, yeah, even even when things have been going relatively well lately, and they have won some games in recent weeks, like it just seems like everyone aside from Tyrese Maxey is incredibly slow on this team, and the the offense is very much the clogged toilet offense where they don't have it. <laughs> They don't have a true point guard who can get it to Joel, who, to his credit, has been getting very good post position on a lot of possessions. He's been fighting really hard to get to get deep into the paint and and work to 
be in a good spot to receive the ball. And a lot of times it just doesn't seem like they have the guys who can make that entry pass, which it's a simple thing to talk about, but it, I think the Sixers more than any NBA team that I can remember, just don't have guys who can do it because they don't have any point guards on the team. It's, <laughs> it's, it's just kind of as simple as that. It's so yeah, the, the offensive fluidity just isn't there. Um, so even, even when they are performing well on the scoreboard, a lot of times it's just like a grinded out thing. It's not aesthetically pleasing. Um, just a, a far cry from some of the, uh, I guess, I guess some of it stems from Ben Simmons, not creating as many transition opportunities, like, and those easy buckets just aren't there, but it just seems like they're not an as athletic a team as some of the the prior teams in years past. I don't know. What do you think about that? Well, yeah, I think the biggest issue is they're missing Ben Simmons. Um, I know a lot of Sixers fans don't want to hear that for whatever reason. Uh, I, I feel like it should be easy to admit he makes over $30 million and, you know, he's at, he plays at an all-star level in the regular season. So that's, that's a huge drop-off for them. He was the best perimeter defender in the league. A lot of people thought a season ago, and that's a huge, um, that's huge to be missing because as well as Matisse Seibel played against Steph Curry, as well as Joel Embiid is playing defense, you could have a third guy on that same level. And that, that allows some synergies. Now Matisse can guard the next best guy or, you have something to work with in terms of staggering his minutes. And so, yeah, the Sixers still wouldn't be the best offensive team in the league because they don't have someone who's like even a Kyle Lowry or a Mike Conley in the half court to get by his men. You know how both of those two players I named, they get by their man and then they kind of start boxing them out by the three point line while they make decisions. Um, they don't have anyone who does that. When Tyrese Maxey gets by his man, he's going on a beeline to the hoop. He's not. Uh, he doesn't have that ability yet where he can hit the brakes and then slowly make a decision and process um, consistently. So I think there's a lot of factors going on that you're seeing, but um, the simplest solution is probably the one no one wants to hear is that they miss their second or third best player. They certainly do. Or alternatively, I guess, if you're down on Ben and never want to see him in a Sixers uniform again, if you're one of those people, they're missing $30 million in cap space that could be allocated to other players to be brought in. And that that's like a big chunk of, of the salary cap and what you have at your disposal for team building purposes. It'd be like in the, in major league baseball, where the Yankees have a certain spending limit and the other teams have about 60% of what the spending limit is. The rosters just aren't congruous with each other there. There's a talent disparity and the Sixers are kind of playing with one hand tied behind their back because they have a guy taking up a significant portion of their, their resources under the, the system under which the NBA governs and he's just sitting at home. So yeah, they've got the three star model. Um, but they've only got one star. They've got Tobias Harris making basically max. They've got Ben and they've got Joel and they're only getting that value from Joel at this point on the court. That's yeah. You couldn't, couldn't have said it better. And I think that leads us perfectly into the next thing I wanted to talk about. What do we make of Tobias Harris lately? It, as you said, he's making near max money. 
but three for 17 from the field against Brooklyn. Um, he's still second on the team in scoring this year. He's averaging 18 and a half points a game, but just looks like there's been a significant drop off from his play last year. doesn't look as decisive. Doc Rivers has been pretty uh, demonstrative during games about telling Tobias to, to work faster and, and get downhill and everything else that he, he kind of beat into his head last year. And it, it looked like there was some success, but it just doesn't seem to be the case as much this year. Um, I, I will mention that Tobias, you know, did miss time with COVID. He has said publicly that he still feels like it feels like he has a cold every day was how he framed it. Um, so just doesn't feel like himself uh, how he did pre-COVID, which, you know, we've seen athletes in the past discuss how it took them a long time in some cases to really feel 100% and feel back to their old selves, even after they were no longer testing positive and uh, would be deemed COVID-free and are cleared to return to action. They just, they still don't feel like themselves. It, it does seem based on what Tobias is saying that that's the case. So I want to give him a fair shake and, and at least talk about that, but I don't know. He just doesn't look like even, even before his absence, he doesn't look like the same player we saw last year. Um, What have, what have you seen from Tobias uh, this year? Yeah. My instinct is to, to take it easy on Tobias Harris. Um, for the reasons you mentioned, he had COVID. Uh, he had a hip injury, I believe. I'm not sure if he had any other injuries. Uh, and then he had a non-COVID illness. Uh, and he recently just said, I'm reading uh, Austin Krull on Twitter from December 15th. This is on lingering potential side effects and what you're going through. No one cares. That's a fact. No one cares what's going on with you health-wise at home, whatever. So my read on that is he's saying, I'm not playing. I'm not hundred percent. I'm not healthy. I'm not where I'd like to be uh, health-wise and I'm not going to fill it in the rest and start saying that's why I'm not playing well. Cause I'd still like to be playing better, but uh, I'd like to give him somewhat of a pass for not being at that level that we saw the first half of last season, especially when the Sixers are down such an important player who, who ignites all of those transition opportunities that Tobias really thrives upon. Um, I think Tobias is getting a full less field goal attempt in transition per game this season. So, you know, the Sixers got more stops last year. They got out and ran as much as they could after those rebounds. Tobias Harris would get one wide open three, one wide open layup per game. Um, in the first half of last season, when he was playing the best ball of his career, the Sixers were, uh, were an actual title contender. They had Ben Simmons playing like an all-star. They had Tobias Harris playing like an all-star. They had Joel Embiid playing like an MVP. Uh, we haven't seen – I would say that we haven't quite seen that, Tobias, since the offense fell apart when Joel Embiid hurt his knee following the all-star break. Um, the offense really morphed at that point. They started asking – Harris to carry bench units with Dwight Howard that never worked, which has led to some PTSD for us thinking of all those very slow, not making quick decisions out on the perimeter ISOs for, for Toby um, against a fully loaded locked defense sitting in the paint, waiting for him to take his pull up. And so that didn't work. And I think some of that's carried over. And then you put this 
injury and illness stuff on top of it, that's what you're saying. Even if he was having said all that, even if he was playing at his absolute best, um, it's still fair to say this is a poor use of, of funds. Yeah. I, I think it, Jackson Frank, our colleague at Liberty Ballers said this on Twitter, uh, I believe yesterday or maybe the day before that that was maybe one of the most damaging decisions of the, the post-process era, giving Tobias that near max contract. And I think he said it very well that this isn't a knock on Tobias. It's a knock on the decision makers who decided that a player who is not a caliber of a max player should get a contract of a max player nearly. He's obviously a shade under it, but how damaging that is to, to lock yourself into having, having a B a B player getting a plus money and, and how hard that is from a team building perspective to move forward and, and what a detrimental decision that was for the, the franchise building moving forward. Um, yeah, I, I, I do. I, I agree with you. It Tobias should get a little more leniency than the people out there tend to give him. I, it feels like the, the, the tar and pitchforks are out for him right now. Um, and he, he definitely has had some really bad games lately. The, the three for 17 against Brooklyn being one example, he had a, a stretch um, a couple weeks ago where he, he, he was no better than 40% from the field for four straight games. Um, but yeah, before, before he had COVID, he was at least 50% from the field in all six games in October. Uh, he was averaging just a hair under 20 points per game and shooting the ball, uh, shooting the ball. Well, so yeah, maybe there, I'm sure there is some truth to what he said about not feeling like himself because of COVID post-COVID symptoms. And I also think some of it falls on Doc Rivers. Last year, Toby was, he was anchoring those bench units and that was really where he was able to eat and get a lot of his production. Um, And this year they have George Niang who has been playing very well, but they haven't been playing together very often, Tobias and George. So that's kind of precluded doc from having Tobias on any of the bench units and his minutes seem a lot more tied to Joel and Tobias and Joel, they seem to like to operate in a lot of the same spaces, kind of that, that mid foul line extended area where they can get, they can body somebody up and then turn and face the basket and go from there. Um, everyone wants Tobias to be this like spot up and then slasher guy, but that's not really where he's most comfortable. Um, and he was able to do that with the bench units last year where he could kind of operate as the offensive fulcrum in the mid post and then, and then work from there. But obviously that's where Joel is with starters. So it just seems like between Tobias and then also Tyrese Maxey, who we're going to talk about next, like they have three guys that are all in the starting lineup and rightfully everything should be run through Embiid, but, you have two other guys who would benefit from having the ball in their hands to start and a little more offensive leash. And they just don't get it because they're mostly on the court with Joel. Yeah. I know this was the case for one, maybe a year and a half. I'm not sure if it was quite two years, but Harris's best, best games would come in those games and B wasn't in the lineup similar to Ben Simmons. And 
the two of them could really uh, could really work. You remember when they first made the trade? Um, there was a game in Oklahoma. Oklahoma was not fully tanking, and they and they they won that game. I think Harris had about thirty points. He played terrific in that series against Brooklyn a couple of years ago in the game Joel Embiid missed. And so there was that dynamic where it felt like he doesn't quite know how to mesh with this dominant post force at this point. So it became important. And that's kind of a theme we're seeing now with Simmons, Harris, and now newly Tyrese Maxey, where it's hard for a a secondary or tertiary um, ball handler to feel comfortable. I think we talked about it last time I was on to feel comfortable in the half court when there's someone as dominant as Joel. Um, I think Harris has felt some of that. Now, if he were a hundred percent healthy, and he were get absorbing those bench units. Maybe maybe Maxie's out there with him. I think I would like to see that. Um, so to your point, I would love to see Doc abandon his his weird hockey shifts, all starters, all bench. Because I think the, the problem there is it doesn't allow him to experiment. I mean, I was floored the other night when the team played so well with Matisse on Steph Curry and Danny Green in the lineup. I checked the NBA lineups. I'm like, these two have played 23 minutes total coming into that game. How is that possible? Sean, I ask you, if you, would you have guessed that? Would you have ever done that to play those two best wing defenders? Never together. <laughs> no, I, I would have taken the over on that for sure. You would, so, you would think, yeah. you would think having as many wing defenders as possible would be good because that's kind of where the league's trending with everyone being these tweeners and you need the, the defensive flexibility to guard a few positions. Yeah. And I don't think it's because doc rivers and his staff thought these two don't coexist. Well, I'm sure they would have said they do. You get so much wingspan. Um, I think what it is, is just friendly fire of when you're so committed to keeping a starting five together that you you miss out on myriad opportunities to find better permutations for more playoff viable lineups. And that was the coup de grace for the Sixers last year. They didn't look for those. They loved how their starters looked all season long. You couldn't knock them for that because they had such a good plus minus. But you knew in the back of your mind when the playoffs start, A, something could go wrong, and it did. Danny Green got a soft tissue injury and was out. So they didn't have that lineup and they had absolutely nothing to go to instead. And you get the sense that even if the Sixers were contenders right now, that would bite them because Doc's not changing that. Well, they did have something to go to. It was Shake Milton coming in the game in the fourth quarter after not playing a minute <laughs> prior <laughs> to that. Right. It was kind of throw, <laughs> throw stuff at the wall. Yeah, just throw your hands up and say, oh, I don't know, let's try something completely random. Who knows? Um, yeah, you're right. That that was a, a flaw last year of the team and everyone in in the media and the fan base was shouting to the heavens, like, well, do something different. And Doc didn't. And it yeah. seems to be the case again this year. So, uh, yeah, I think a lot of the a lot of the blame has to, to fall on the head coach here to like, yeah, you don't have a perfect roster, but I feel like there's enough, there's more talent readily available than what a 15 to 15 record would show, especially when you're losing games to teams that are literally missing 40% of the roster. Uh, you, like a good coach, like 
Eric Spolstra vastly outcoached Doc Rivers in that game earlier this week. Like it was pretty clear that one team came came in with a, a plan, perfectly executed it, and didn't beat themselves. And you have the other team that just looks sloppy and like they could just walk on the court and win because they had all their, all their players available. And that's just not the case in the NBA. The, the, this isn't college football where sometimes you play a team and the talent disparity is so vast that that's enough. Like these are all professional NBA pl- players who are among the best 200 in the world of what they do. Like you're not going to just walk on the court and, and get it done without a good plan and executing that plan. So, yeah, I think Spolstra. Jenkins and then Nash all pretty convincingly outcoached Doc. There were some possessions with Joel fighting hard for position on the on the weak side. The, the ball's not even on his end. And then you got Tobias lingering for like a touch at the nail. And I thought, oh, this looks like 2020. <laughs> Where's Harrison Al Horford? Didn't... Yeah, yeah. We could stick of... him in there and get our old triple post up offense going. <laughs> yeah. And to watch then, to watch then like you know, Brooklyn put out guys who have never played before, never played non-garbage time minutes before uh, and get key production or Blake Griffin, who's shooting 34% from the field and 18% from downtown. And he comes right in and hurts the Sixers having not been able to hurt anyone else. Um, it, it put the spotlight on the Sixers head coach for me. And I started thinking to myself, if doc, if Daryl Morey had one regret, he probably has 50. But if he has one important regret in Houston, wasn't it not making a change at head coach a little sooner? He knew at some point Kevin McHale wasn't the answer. He eventually found Mike D'Antoni. Doesn't he wish he had looked for that maybe two, three years sooner in James Harden's prime? So I wonder if he's thinking along those same lines and at what point Doc C could get hot here. Yeah, Mike Mike D'Antoni was a guy that Sixers took a long look at a few years back before they settled on Doc Rivers. And it it looked to be that they got off to a good start in, in this new marriage together, the Sixers and Doc Rivers. But yeah, lately it's been frustrating with some of the inaction he's taking in shaking up the lineups and the rotations and everything, which sometimes you would say, oh, well, you want to give the guy the benefit of the doubt and he's trying to figure things out. but this has been a, a, a long pattern, not only in Philadelphia, but in his prior coaching stints where people just get frustrated with, with how his rotations work and his, his rigidity in, in those, in those lineups. Um, so it, it, I don't think at the stage of his coaching career, that's something that he's going to be willing to change. And it seems like it's hurting him. Um, if you, if yeah, to that point, if you are staring at box scores, you might think exactly that. Okay, look, give him a break. Look, look what they've dealt with. He was missing his best player for three weeks. They're lucky to be the record they're at. But if you're watching every moment of every game and paying attention in between games, you're realizing they're not 15 and 14, 15 and 15 with this um, sort of frenetic iteration. They're not really experimenting with things that we. You know, we're not learning like, okay, that didn't work. Let's not try that again. Let's go back to this. We're not seeing those things, those lineup combinations where we'd say, okay, well, they went to their switch everything. They went to their deep drop. They went to this. They went to this pairing that we don't often see. It's kind of just we're trying to do what we would have liked to do last year when we had the best starting five, and now we're not even close to that. Yeah, and this would be a good point to to bring up what Doc – mentioned the other day in, in the post game 
they, this was two games ago against Miami and he was asked like, have you given thought to breaking apart the Joel and Tyrese minutes a little bit more and have Tyrese run more with the second unit? Mm. And basically he said that he hasn't and Tyrese, the, the reality is that Tyrese isn't going to score as much because Joe and Seth are playing and it just is what it is. And he just needs Tyrese to facilitate instead. And I just think that's not really recognizing your personnel. You have a guy in Tyrese Maxey who's shown at the NBA level that he can really score. He's he's had some premier scoring games in his short NBA career. He hasn't shown that he has advanced playmaking ability as a facilitator, and he doesn't have you know the requisite court vision to to really run an offense at at an advanced level at this stage of his career. So why are you trying to fit this? square peg into a round hole rather than maximize what Maxi does bring to the table and have him get a little more time with the second unit. Like you can, I I get the argument that, Oh, you want them to gel. They're two of your best players and they're going to need to be, if if you're going to reach your ceiling as a team this year, like Maxi and Joel are going to have to be able to work together, but isn't, can't you accomplish that in 18 minutes per game together rather than 24 minutes a game together and have those extra six minutes be maxi with the second unit, just going ham and looking like he does when they only have eight guys in the rotation and Joel sitting and maxi just has the keys to the offense. Like, can't we see that for an extra six minutes a game? And don't we think that would be helpful to the team as a whole? Like it, it just seems frustrating that, you know, doc just kind of even dismisses the idea and like, it is what it is. And, he, he just seems so stuck in this starter and bench unit mindset. It's, it's really frustrating to me. It is. It's very frustrating. And I'm thinking like, this is good stuff. Like someone just bottle what Sean said and send it to the Sixers because it's baffling that they're not, they're not doing this. Do they not know this? Um, yeah. I mean, Joel and B comes back to the lineup from being out for three weeks and suddenly Tyrese Maxey, who's going berserk, is struggling to find his role. And that makes perfect sense. He's 21 years old. He's playing after his basically his first true breakout. And it fizzles for a couple games, and you're thinking, okay, obviously Joel's back, and he doesn't really know what to do. He wants to defer to a perennial MVP candidate, and for good reason. So it makes a lot of sense then to – Get him some of those. And by the way, this is the exact conversation we had for like months last year about Ben Simmons. You want to buttress those minutes. Joel is not in the game. You want to buttress those minutes when Joel's not in the lineup because he's resting every few games or whatever. Uh, and that's when you want your best players out on the court. Last year, you wanted Harris and Ben Simmons out when Joel sat and we didn't get that. And this year you think, okay, well, Joel's out. Of course, Maxie's got to be out there. Not only will he give you your best shot to avoid obliteration in those minutes, it'll maintain his confidence to be able to run up and down the floor in those lineups we just saw him thrive with. Get him the spread floor, let him go, and he, he does those off-foot, off-hand finishes, gets his confidence going. Once he's got his rhythm back, then put Joel in and see if it maintains. Uh, to use the same analogy on a star level, Drew Holiday didn't look particularly comfortable when he first got to the Milwaukee Bucks. They, they had a full season to get it going, but in crunch time at times with Giannis on the floor, 
relegated to spot up role, he didn't look like he was Drew Holiday for a while. Remember, people were saying like Bledsoe, Drew Bledsoe, <laughs> um, and then they they stagger those minutes. So every time Giannis sits, they have Middleton and Holiday out there. At one point, Giannis got hurt uh, trying to block Clint Capella, I think. And then they exploded. Those two exploded. And they, they knew they were needed. They stepped up. Um, and so I think they sort of found themselves at a championship level, talking about Middleton and Holiday, without Giannis in the lineup, so that when he returned, they maintained that rhythm even with him on the floor. And I don't know what Doc would say about that. Why can't a guy find his rhythm without a superstar, keep it going, buttress the minutes, and then see if it maintains when Joel is reinserted? Maybe he'd say something like, you have to force this. It's not going to be pretty. You need him to play a facilitating role. I'm not sure. Maybe he'd say that the plus minus of the starting unit is so good, it's worth whatever breaking even we're doing with the second unit. But I just don't like it. Yeah, and I don't even know if I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it doesn't feel like that's the case. This isn't the Sixers starting lineup of a few years ago that's blowing everyone else out of the water. I I don't think that that's they've necessarily been doing that. It's not like they're jumping out the huge leads every game with the starters and then the bench is blowing it. There have been games where the bench has performed better than the starting lineup has. Like, it, I, yeah. I, I, I just don't feel like that's been the case. Like, there have definitely been times where the starters got them in a hole and the bench got them out of it. And, or the bench had let a big late third quarter run to, to help lead them to the win or something like it's yeah. Some, some games, the bench has been awful. It's not like it's the best bench in the league. I'm not saying that, but it's, it's definitely not the, the roster of a few years ago where every single game was, Oh, the 10 minutes to else sits, everything falls completely falls apart. And that's the reason they're losing. Like there's, plenty of reasons are losing that's not the only one yeah i mean there's a there's a bazillion reasons to stagger Embiid and maxi's minutes a little bit more and the one that we probably touched upon but i just wanted to emphasize is if you're doing that and obviously you're you're finding a way to keep your best players out there the whole game that also forces you to experiment more with different combinations something doc is not always uh, excited to do so that would benefit the team as well yeah, it's. I think a lot of us are asking the same questions, and it, it it's getting very frustrating uh, at this point with with Doc not making, not experimenting, and not making these changes. So, uh, I mean, we we can wait and see if he does down the road. But uh, you know, is there any chance that they'd fire him midseason? No. What if they fell to like four games below five hundred mid to late January? There's no trade in sight on the horizon. I just, I don't think they, they would do, I think they have too much respect for Doc um, and, and they have a good relationship that I I don't see a mid-season firing. I think that he, somewhat fairly, he could just point to like the Ben Simmons situation and just say like, oh, well, my second best player has been at home the entire season. You haven't traded for any reinforcements. So I just have this, this hole in the salary cap where we're playing with one hand tied behind our back every night. Um, Somewhat fairly, they could point back and say, you're part of why that hasn't worked out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, there's obviously blame all the way around. Um, but I, I don't like, who are you bringing in in mid season? That's going to like turn this around. I, I don't think that would be the case. So yeah, I, I think they would just tap Sam Cassell and see if they like him. 
Yeah, what, I, I, I like Sam. Happen. I, I, I think he might be worth a shot. I just don't think it would happen. I don't see any situation where it happens mid-season. I think yeah. it would be during the off-season if they were to make a change. Um, all right, we're gonna we're gonna take a quick break now and hear from our sponsor. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, we're back. Um, next thing I want to do, I wanted to kind of take our scope out a little bit to the, to the broader league discussions. Um, something that came up a lot this week was the MVP talk and primarily uh, Nikola Jokic being left off some people's lists when they were when they were having these conversations. And then there was obviously the backlash of people like Zach Lowe, like rightfully pointing out, like you have to include Jokic in these discussions he's putting up historic numbers like all the advanced stats absolutely love him and if if you kind of stack up certain metrics like he's blowing these even these other MVP candidates out of the water um so I, I feel like you have to include him uh so the Sixers just played Kevin Durant and the Brooklyn Nets yesterday and you know Durant obviously looked every bit the part of an MVP candidate he was huge in Brooklyn's victory with just pulling up the stats. Now he had 34, 11 and eight, and it just seemed like he was getting to his spots as he so often does. And he could do whatever he wanted. And he's a seven foot elite shooter and there's just nothing you can do to stop him. Uh, I don't know what, just from a broader perspective, Dave, what did you think of the MVP talk this week that went down? Uh, I think if it ended today, Steph Curry would win it, and deservedly so. Uh, I think you could make the case that he's the best player on the planet right now. And we saw a little bit about why when the Sixers played them. I mean, he he just bends your defense completely in half, and it reminds me of those seasons a couple of years ago when we watched the Utah Jazz sit on James Harden's wrong hand. And like, you've never seen defenses do these things before that seem like they're, they're shooting themselves in the foot, but it's because they have no idea what to do with when there's a player this good playing this well. So I, I, I'd be hard pressed not to say that Steph is playing the best through 30 games uh, and his team is winning. I think I, he'd get my vote. I was certainly not quibble. Kevin Durant, if, if there was one game to win, I might take him over even Steph. Um, but I think it's a two it's a two person race at this point, as well as guys like Giannis and Jokic have been playing. I think uh, I think Durant and Steph have been the best two players so far. Yeah, that's fair. And it's one of the things that makes things like discussing MVP so interesting is that it's such a nebulous kind of term and you can approach it from a lot of different angles and you're approaching it from when you're game planning for this opponent. I have to change what I do more than I would against anybody else. And it, that, that could be the right way to approach it. It could be the wrong way to approach it, but it's, it's, it's one way to approach having this conversation and kind of assigning value in, in whatever a, a valuable, most valuable player means to you. Um, because there is, there's no right answer. Like 
there isn't a clearly defined metric or anything that you can use in these things. Um, yeah, I think I think everyone was the the backlash was right. Like you can't just leave Jokic out of these conversations. But if you wanted to say Steph, that's perfectly valid as an answer. He's as you mentioned, a guy that just changes everything you do whenever you play for him. You're constantly accounting for him. Um, and they have the best record in the league. So that's historically, that's that's where you look to to find your most valuable player is, hey, who's the best team? Who's the best player on that team? Um, they're tied with Phoenix right now at 23 and five. So that would make all the sense in the world. Like Kevin Durant has his team t- atop the Eastern Conference, despite James Harden missing time, not having Kyrie Irving the entire season. Like he's playing with uh, what Steve Nash dubbed the the KD and rookie lineups where he's just out there with four rookies. Just that's, that's wild to think about. And they're, they're top of conference and he's kind of like dragging them to that. Uh, they played with eight players a couple games ago and KD wasn't even supposed to play until he was, he was kind of a game time decision to even determine whether they could have the game because he was the eighth player to make it a valid game. And he had like this huge performance, like that's Triple an MVP. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's an MVP caliber performance. And then Jokic just, he does that every night. Like he's nearly a triple double every night. And if they're missing Jamal Murray, they don't have probably the level of talent up and down the roster that those other teams we've talked about do. So I think you definitely knock him in MVP discussions because his team's 14 and 14, but where would Denver be if they didn't have Nikola Jokic? They'd be probably towards the bottom of the standings. So, and, and then, you know, Giannis is kind of a similar argument with uh, Steph and KD where the Bucks are second in the, the East right now. He has the track record of being like a finals MVP and being, being shown as the best player of the league and has put up similar numbers. So you just kind of have to include him. So I think I, to be I, honest I, at this point is like how James Harden was in Houston. It's like, we're too bored to vote for you. So we'd much rather do a, a lifetime yeah. achievement award for Steph or KD. We'd much rather, uh, and we don't want to do back to back for Jokic. So we're just going to pick between those two legends because they were both out with injury and it's such a good story. Yep. Yeah. That's it. This award is such a, it's so narrative driven that even it's why Carl Malone won an MVP over Michael Jordan. Like eventually, no matter how good a player is, people just get tired of voting for the same person over and over again. So obviously Giannis is not playing nearly the same caliber that Michael Jordan was in the nineties. So, but you're still seeing a similar, similar uh, mindset. Yeah. So um that's that's how these things work you know it's there's there's no there's no right answer because it's it's such this this award that people assign value to in different ways in their own mind and they, it's narrative driven because it's a narrative driven league and they like having things to talk about throughout the year like like who is the mvp like in a in a 24 hour news cycle that helps up that helps take up a lot of oxygen so yeah, if, I mean, Jokic should be included, but it's it's hard to say he's definitely the MVP, even though the numbers might pair that out uh, because they're 14 and 14. And we've historically said, like, you need to be one of the better teams to win MVP. The, and whether or not that's fair, it, 
who knows, but that's, that's just how it works. So just a, an interesting discussion. And unfortunately the, uh, the Sixers were on the wrong end of facing a guy who's playing MVP caliber basketball, uh, when they, they lost to Brooklyn. Um, I mean, but so from one a, thing, yeah, go let ahead. Me, let me ask you this. One thing that, that popped out to me is when I think about these guys, I'm someone who's argued that Joel Embiid's defense makes up for what a guy like Jokic has on offense. And so Embiid is the better overall player. I don't think that's the case this season. I think Jokic's defense is just good enough where that his offense is savant-like and he's playing better ball than Joel is. Um, And then you think about a guy like Kevin Durant, who's so plug and play that you could throw Kessler Edwards into his first NBA game. There's no spacing issues. Um, it's it, he's finding the open man when he's commanding these double teams. Is there something about Joel Embiid that players find difficult to find their roles, to find their footing that you don't see with these other MVP candidates? And is that something that could impact them in these blockbuster trade rumors or free agency where it's like, if I'm choosing a place to go in a title, I have a harder time seeing how I fit in with Joel than I would a wing player or a, a pass shoot and pass first center like Jokic. Yeah, he's definitely more of an outlier in that he's this huge seven footer who primarily like he he's obviously improved his shooting ability a great deal and he's a he's a very good shooter for his position, but he's a guy that primarily operates either in the mid range or in the post. And this is kind of a perimeter oriented league now. So in that sense, he's a little bit of an outlier. Um, but I, I don't think it's the case that most players would find it difficult to play f- with him. I think anyone who's a willing and capable outside shooter can obviously play with him. Anyone that can operate as a pick and roll ball handler can play with him. Like I, I think Maxi and Joel could and probably will make a very good pairing. I think Maxi's just a little reticent because he hasn't quite find his found his footing playing with Joel. But I think if they really wanted to unleash them as like a pick and roll pairing, I think that could work. I think Tobias is not a great fit alongside Joel because he there are times when he's not a willing shooter and he just doesn't have that a quick trigger. And he also likes to operate in those same kind of mid range post-up situations that Joel does, but that's, that's not most players in the league. I think if you get guys that are more, more fungible as like bulk on ball creator slash spot up shooter types, like I, I think any of those will just fit, fit along Joel very nicely. Um, yeah, KD, KD is kind of a historic exception because he's a seven-footer, so he can play center, but he he also brought the ball down every possession when Brooklyn played the Sixers the other night. Like, he was their point guard, too. And he can shoot from anywhere on the court. He has the defensive, uh, like, fluidity and athleticism to just guard across multiple positions so you can just slot him anywhere you want. Um, yeah, he's so underrated he's, there still. So he's just like the term's been overused, but he is really a unicorn in that sense. Like you can just kind of put him wherever you want and that'll work. Um, so, so I think KD's a historic exception in that sense. Like St- Steph, like, yeah, you can put him like, I, I don't, I don't know how well like an on ball creator would work next to him, but yeah, then you could just say, oh, well, Steph will run off, off ball screens and he'll do like, of Ray Allen with Miami and he'd be like 
the greatest spot up shooter, the greatest JJ Redick prime that you've ever seen, just like running his guy off the off the screen like constantly, or he can just be on the ball and you can have anyone next to him and, and just work a pick and roll with Steph with the ball in his hands. Like, so that works from that sense. You're making, you're making a fair point that maybe it's, it's not a fair comparison to Embiid, but um, I was looking at it from like the Sixers want a blockbuster trade. They want Damian Lillard or Bradley Beal. Is there any part of those guys, if you were Bradley Beal right now, you're shooting about 30% from three, 10 points less per game than you normally are. Is there any part of you that would say, if I played my next four years with Joel, I, I could struggle. I might not know exactly what my role is when he's getting as many paint touches as he is. It's difficult. And Daryl Morey once talked about this on a podcast. He, he traded like the ninth overall pick for Shane Battier in, par, in no small part because they were having trouble making entry passes to Yao Ming. I mean, he literally said this. Entry passes are hard to make. It's, it's not always easy to get a big ball. Uh, they they don't like to see it in the NBA, it seems, so they let a lot of action fouling happen. So if you were Beal, if you were Dame, is there part of you that's thinking, maybe that's not the best fit for me. Maybe I'll put four other fits ahead of it. It could be. Um, I, I I wouldn't discount it as being part of the equation. But are I, I think another part of the equation is, are those other places they might head where the fit is slightly better is the talent downgrade worth it like because Joel is among the 5 to 8 best players in the league are you going to somewhere a, a destination where you have that same caliber of talent alongside you that gives you the same chances to win all right I, so I, let me I'll ask you this then if I'm Dame Lillard and you're Bradley Beal and I call you and say, hey, man, and we talk about lo- loyalty to a franchise for an hour. And then I say, I have a chance to get traded to Philly, and so do you. One of us can take that and try to win a ring, or we could both meet up to play for the Knicks. That They could make it work with a sign-and-trade and a trade. Uh, would you rather play with me? And your only goal was to win a championship, and you're Bradley Beal. What do you say? you want Joel, or do you want Dame in New York? I think Joel's the better player and he would do so much to anchor a defense that I think that would give you a much greater chance to win. If that's, if that's, if that's really where your heart is, like I want to go somewhere where I have the best chance to win while still being, you know, a co-alpha or whatever, I think you would choose Philadelphia. If you wanted to go somewhere and say, well, I, if I went to Philly, I'd only average 24 a game because I wouldn't, have the ball in my hands as much because it's a little more post-centric and I, I wouldn't have the same kind of freedom I do offensively if I went somewhere alongside a co a co-alpha guard and we just took turns having the ball in our hands every time down the court and we could each average 28 a game uh, but we probably don't win a title because our defense wouldn't be good enough like that's if that's what you want that's what you want but I, I don't think that would give you the best chance to win yeah, Dame. I agree with that. I think Dame could say like, "Ah, I've tried that with CJ." No, yeah, like like Beal, Beal would be a better version of CJ, but the same kind of inherent problems in building a title contender would be there. Yeah. All right. So I wanted to finish on. Uh, we just saw the December fifteenth. <laughs> Some people wrongfully wrongly called it a deadline. It was kind of 
whatever the opposite of a deadline is like the i almost the, i wrote about it i almost typed that myself somehow that just that word comes <laughs> i knew what it is it's yeah. a beginning not an end it's an so. yeah it's an opening it's when certain players that were signed during the offseason were first available to be traded and people pointed to it as oh well maybe that's when the simmons trade but could happen but if you looked at the players that newly became available on December 15th. There was no one that moved the needle for for a Ben Simmons trade to happen. If you, if you really wanted to, to bend yourself and make contortions, you could say, well, like, oh, well, this could help facilitate a three-team deal maybe or something. But but really, realistically, nothing was ever happening with the Ben Simmons trade on December 15th. But of course, local talk radio and everyone else, because we need things to talk about, they they like hyped it up as some some big date and uh a deal actually like any deal hasn't gone down on december 15th in many years <laughs> so i don't know like where where were you in your mind as december 15th like did you go to sleep on december 14th and and any part of you think like oh maybe something could happen tomorrow i think my reaction was like on December 12th, I started seeing on Twitter everyone talking about the trade happening at midnight, and I thought, but the reports are that the Sixers want a top 25 player. That's not that's not happening on December 15th. I, I don't think – I think what we learned by now is that if you have your sights set on SGA or Beal or Dame, that these guys that the Sixers are consistently linked to, that you need to let those situations shake out. And they're going to take some time. Those guys haven't asked out yet. As soon as they do, you might have the best offer on the table. Or you might not, but you, you'd have a chance. Um, you'd, be, you'd be in the conversation, for sure. You'd for sure in the conversation. And so I didn't think anything was going to happen right away because there wasn't an incentive for the Sixers to execute anything swiftly unless there's this secret guy that Daryl has identified as the James Harden of 2012, 2022 where he's a sixth man and he's about to be a perennial MVP candidate. And if he found that guy, okay, fine, make your trade tomorrow. But without that person identified and the league's changed a lot where a lot of us would have said, Hey, look at this dude's points per minute. He could be a superstar. Um, So they wouldn't be the only team sniffing around whoever that player X was. So I I think what the way I read all that stuff was the Sixers trade momentum stuff was basically Sixers need to know, what ancillary pieces and what teams they can work with. So they, they have to have something ready. If that day comes, they need to do a three or four team deal that could take time. So better start now. Yep. I I think that's a good breakdown. Uh, I I feel like we're still a couple months away from something happening. I think this is going to go till right up to the deadline because Daryl wants to make sure that what, whatever he does decide upon is the best thing that could have become available. So patience is warranted and, and to see like every option that does become available as teams become more frustrated and struggle on the court and guys become disgruntled and maybe ask out like that's going to happen. We've already seen like a team like Indiana is suddenly, as we talked about last week, everyone seemingly on the trading block. So coming into the season that that wasn't something that was really on people's radar. So there are the obvious situations that could break down and there are situations that could come completely out of left field so just you know stay the course and hopefully the Sixers can tread water enough that 
it's not too late if they do get reinforcements at the trade deadline, like losing these games like they just did against Miami and Brooklyn who are missing a third of their roster. That's not what you want to do. You want to be able to win those games so that like, those are the games you have to win. There's, there's just new two ways about it. That Those were disappointing losses this week, but um, yeah, there's still, you know, 500 on the season. Like everything's all hope is not lost, but they have to play better. And hopefully that deal will come up in February or whenever that can propel them from being an okay team that hopefully wins the games they should win, which they haven't been every night, but, and, and, and kind of vault them back into the contender status that people aspire to coming into the season. Yeah. I think, um, I think as we get closer to that trade deadline and the Sixers learn more about who they are and where they fit in the pecking order, one thing that I was thinking is maybe this idea of a step trade starts to appeal to them more than it did in the off season where you can improve to a degree, you know, player like Pat Beverly, Malik Beasley. Yeah. Like getting, um, getting two two rotation players would at least be helpful. Like to, to your prospects this season. Yeah. It probably isn't taking you from, we, we might make it out of the, the first round and into the second round and, and it's not going to make you like, Oh, we, we suddenly feel like we're definitely going to get to the conference finals, but it'll at least help you win some games. Exactly. And if, and if they could conclude that this trade improves us, our current roster with just a big X at $30 million more. And if we got healthy, maybe we could make the conference finals with a 1% chance at winning the title if we got hot, but at least sell that then in the off season with a bundle of picks. You know, we've added four, four picks from Minnesota, um, one swap, and then we're going to put three of our own picks on top and really play this field when guys like Damon Beal might change teams, Zach Levine, Kyrie Irving, James Harden, and then make a play. Um, so that might be one thing that appeals to them as the deadline approaches. A trade could happen tomorrow, but like you said, it'll probably be closer to February 9th or 10th. So if you're making odds, you might pick a day like January 26th or 27th to just try to wait it towards the deadline, but make it a little earlier. All right. You heard it here first, January 27th, when the, <laughs> when the Ben Simmons trade is going down. Or um, next now, summer. It's one or the other. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I, I, it's the, the logical part of me knows that it's very possible this could drag into the summer, but the emotional fan part of me is just like, oh my God, please don't let that happen. The city of Philadelphia would burn to the ground if Ben Simmons was still here after the trade deadline. Um, yeah, tough the situation. would be tough. Yeah, it really would be. So, all right, that's probably a good place to end on. Um, Dave, thanks for jumping on this week. Uh, where can everybody find your stuff and uh, give, us David, your, yeah, give us all your info? David Early, you can follow me on Twitter. I'll be posting primarily pretty much all about the Sixers and the Brooklyn Nets, mostly Atlantic. Uh, sometimes I talk a little bit about the NFL and fantasy football also. All right. Well, Dave, I appreciate you jumping on for everyone out there. that doesn't know you can follow me at Philly fast break on Twitter, and we will talk to you next week, hopefully with some Sixers wins to discuss. Let's go.